(laughs) (laughs) Hello, and welcome to Can't Make This Shit Up, a true crime podcast. I'm Cassie. And I'm Mark, her dad. I'm a traffic homicide detective in South Florida. And we hope you guys enjoy. So now we'll get to the trial. Bum, bum, bum. Okay, so fingerprint technician William Miller was the first one called to testify, which you knew him, yeah? Uh, Yeah, I knew of him. He testified that Chavez's fingerprint was found on the handgun recovered from the trailer. He described how he found the fingerprints, which I found to be cool. He, He stated on the stand that he placed the gun inside of a chamber within his laboratory, and he released super glue fumes into the chamber, which if you've ever watched CSI, this is it. The fumes adhered to the fingerprints that were present. And through that process, he was able to identify, identify a clear. I can't talk. (laughs) He was able to identify a clear print. Right. Miller further testified that from there, he compared that fingerprint to those taken from Chavez. And there were quote, 10 points of identification throughout this fingerprint, which is only common to Chavez. It's an absolute and positive identification that is left thumbprint made on the weapon, end quote. Right. I think uh, when you're talking fingerprints, I forget, I don't know the exact number. I don't know if it's six or five or six or seven, that once you have that many, like the higher you get, in this case being 10, it's like there, it's an identical match to to the fingerprint there the, from the, the lines and ridges. Like there, there's no arguing against. Yeah, this. yeah. The, the more points you have on the on the thing, then more points on the uh, on the fingerprint. And that's like a, a match It's kind of like a, I don't want to say it's like DNA sequencing or whatever. But, you know, the fingerprints are specific to the person. So the clearer the fingerprint, the more points you can develop the better a match it is. So in this case, 10 was identical. So that's like, yeah, very like that's clear. pretty high. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's like up there. So, so on December 8th, 1995, the same day Chavez had confessed, Miller also examined the books and notebooks found in Jimmy's backpack for fingerprints, right. which I, we talked about this the first time when we recorded, but it's great. It was crazy to me researching it, how quickly they examined the fingerprints. Cause it was literally the day of the confession that right. Miller got the evidence and did all the fingerprinting. Yeah. The normally what happened, well, the process, normally the evidence is collected and then it's submitted and then it's, it's worked more or less in the order that it's received. Now, naturally, high-profile cases or uh, murders are always at the very top of the list. So if a murder comes in, everything gets put on hold, and then they work that murder. Um, then um, naturally, sex crimes, you know, come after that. And there is like a, a ranking or a, um, you know, system. But essentially, this case was so high-profile, and there were so many resources dedicated to it, to solving it, that they were going to have everything ready to go as quickly as they could. That's why that was done and you know, nobody you know everybody stayed working and nobody went home until you know it was basically like call whoever you love you're not going well, home. i'm sure it's also like you know people take it real ser- seriously when it ha- involves children too so absolutely absolutely but yeah but this was this was such a big case just both in the media and because of the the severity of of the crime itself that every resource was thrown out the fbi was involved initially because of the missing person and then once it became a homicide the homicide bureau took it over the entire department every resource our department has was used to you know resolve this case so that's why everything happens happened that quickly uh miller the fingerprint technician he also identified fingerprints belonging to chavez on the front cover of one of the notebooks Mm -hmm. um another on the interior cover of one of the notebooks 
and a third fingerprint on a textbook entitled Journeys in Science, which reading this was like, I had that textbook. Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm sure it was a different edition by the time that like, you know, I was in school, but I, right. I, it's one of those things where like, you forget about it until you read it and you're like, oh my God, like I, re- <laughs> I can picture the textbook in my head. Like, it's crazy that it's this, they still are using the same textbook when I was yeah. in school. Wow. So he testified that the fingerprint found on the inside cover of the notebook was found to have 16 points of identification. Yeah, there you go. That's like even more like. Yeah, like that's, that's definitely like clear, that's like a picture of that's like a crystal clear picture of a of a fingerprint. A positive identification based on the left thumbprint of Mr. Juan Carlos Chavez against the print which was developed on the inside cover. So that's what Miller testified. He also testified that the print on the inside of the science textbook was also valuable as it was made by Chavez's right middle finger and it contained nine points of identification. Additionally, Miller testified that he also compared those prints to the prints of uh, Mrs. Shinehouse and her son, Edward, uh, obviously because they had admitted to handling the evidence when they had found right. it. Right. But their prints were not a match when they were compared. Yeah, they, yeah, their elimination prints were taken from them and it wasn't a match. So all of that was looked at, which is standard. Whenever you have that many like people involved in the, in the initial, I guess, discovery of the evidence or, or whatever it is that you're working So next, a forensic serologist, her name was Teresa Merritt, was called to testify. She stated that she was dispatched to the trailer on the horse farm to assist crime scene personnel in determining if certain stains found at the scene were, in fact, blood. She was asked to test three items, a twin-sized mattress, a cushion found on a bench in the trailer, and the cutout portion of the floor, which they had taken from in front of the front door. She testified that the scrapings from the piece of floorboard and from the cushion tested positive for human bloods. Human bloods. Human blood. It was more than one bloods. All the bloods. <laughs> These scrapings were then sent to LabCorp, which is a kind of famous forensic identity testing laboratory in North Carolina. Like, I, I guess they're used like quite often. Right. It was sent there to determine if the blood was DNA matched to Jimmy Rice. Next, Anita Matthews, uh, who was a laboratory technician from LabCorp, she flew in to testify. Unfortunately, Matthews testified that due to the degradation of Jimmy's corpse, because A, it was had been decomposed so badly and it had been encased in cement and all that, right. that none of the samples they had taken from him were of a sufficient quality for DNA testing. As a result, DNA was taken from Jimmy's parents, Don and Claudine. So she was basically able to test those samples against their DNA. And the results concluded that the blood on the floorboard and the cushion was a 99.9% match to a child born of Don and Claudine. So it was a positive. Yeah, that's that's as good as 100% as you're going to get. Right. And especially in DNA, there's like... Yeah, there's no arguing with DNA. Right, yeah. This is part of the process that I, or the case that I like found the most crazy. So at this point, the prosecution attempted to introduce the bloodstain evidence from the bloodstain mattress. Right. Remember, they had taken that bloodstain tw- twin mattress as well from the trailer. Right. Yep. And the defense objected. However, their objection was overruled by the judge. So the judge informed the jury that the evidence found on the mattress was being introduced, quote, for the limited purpose of showing that the stain on this exhibit is not related to this case, and specifically that the source of that stain is unknown, and that Samuel James Rice and Chavez have been excluded as the source of that stain, end quote. So basically, they found this bloody ass mattress, and they don't know whose the blood is. 
Right. Which we'll get to later, but I think there's, I think there's more victims personally, which that was the one point of this case that, cause I already kind of knew obviously growing up in South Florida, this was such a famous case. I already knew the general like outline of this, the case, but that was one piece of the case that I had no idea about. And I was like, (gasps) right. Which is, which we'll talk about after why, why the trailer was held on for so long. So next the chief medical examiner for Dade County, Dr. Roger Middleman. Did you know him? Nope. No. He, was before my, he was before my time. He was called to testify. He stated that on December 9th, he examined the body parts found within the planters. He testified that the cement within the planters had essentially encased Jimmy's body parts, obviously. Photographs of the contents of each planter were distributed to the jury. And I was like, whoa. Yeah. I mean, I've always wanted to be on a jury and I'm actually really pissed that I've never been called. But it would be rough to look at shit like that. Yeah, if you're called for one of those type of cases, that's not fun. That's for sure. Necessary, unfortunately. Because I mean, I, I totally get why they have to look at it, but yeah. it's just like, ooh. Right. Yeah. It's yeah, it's not it's not a good thing. Middleman went on to testify that one planter contained the skull, the remains of his left lower extremity, and a left sneaker. The second planter contained his pelvis, um, which ha- was still attached to his right uh, leg. God. Also in the second planter was detached portions of his pelvis and portions of uh, the vertebral column, so his back, and also just pieces of random clothing. In the last planter contains the chest with the arm still attached and a t-shirt was still on the body. Dr. Middleman testified that the body basically expands as decomposition takes place. So that's why the top of the barrel had popped off after three days. Correct. Body bloops. Oof. He finally testified about the cause of death stating that an x-ray had been taken of the body cavity and it showed a projectile lodged in the victim's heart, which turned out to be a jacket from the bullet. The bullet had entered through the back on the right side near the sixth rib. So they determined that at least that part of his story was accurate, how he said that he had been shot in the back. Right. The bullet traveled upwards through Jimmy's body, traveling through his lung and heart and exited through the upper left area of his chest. So Middleman testified that based on that trajectory, he believed Jimmy had been shot with the gun pointed slightly upward below the victim, which matched Chavez's confession about being on the floor. Jimmy standing, right, being in a standing position and Chavez shooting from the floor upwards there. Right. However, Middleman also testified that from the evidence, there was no way to ascertain how far from Jimmy, Jimmy Chavez had been when he fired. Correct. Middleman had also examined the bush hook, which had been used to dismember the body. And he testified that the bush hook had actually matched some of the cut marks on the body. But he also stated that it was possible another instrument had also been used, which they never found that instrument, if that's the case. Right. It was also stated to the jury by the serologist, Teresa Merritt, that we talked about. She had examined the bush hook for traces of blood, but had found none because obviously he had cleaned it. Chavez's defense objected to the showing of the autopsy photos to the jury. They claim the photos were prejudicial as a result of their gruesome nature. That makes absolutely no sense, but... I know. It's like, well, yeah, it's gruesome. He did it. Yeah, part of the... Like, he basically is like, oh, don't show them that because they're going to be mad that I did that. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It's too It's too nasty. No, well, you killing the boy is nasty. This is just yeah. all part of it. Like, you know, come on. His objection was overruled. <laughs> of course. Um, he's just trying, you know, he's just, the lawyer's just trying to do something, you know, like... Which I'm sure as a lawyer, like a defense attorney, I'm sure this case was like super hard to take on considering that there was so much evidence against him. 
Don't be wrong. I give that you'll see as we go on. Like I give the defense kudos. Like they tried. It's too I'm much. I'm sure it was like one of those naturally. I don't know if he was if he took it because of the the nature of the case, like the high profileness of the case, or if he was public defender, or if it was um, private attorneys. Sometimes assigned like pro bono, like they have to. Um, sometimes they're signed from the court to, especially these high profile cases, because they, you know, the, the, I think a public defender is just too overworked and too busy to, you know, to be able to properly handle okay. the case. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that that's the case, but I'm sure. Well, I, I don't think, cause when I was doing the research, I don't, I don't think it was a public defender. Okay. I mean, I know that, I know that Chavez didn't have the money to hire, you know, a lawyer. Yeah. So I'm sure it was like pro bono or whatever. So the last state witness called to testify was Thomas Cork. Okay. You know him? Mm, doesn't sound familiar. He was the firearms examiner. Oh, okay. Yeah. We did discuss this. No, I don't, I didn't, I did not know him or know of him. He testified that he had received a 38 caliber Taurus model 85 revolver, which I have no idea what that means beyond it being a revolver, but 38 was- caliber. It's just a standard revolver. That's. I mean, if there's gun people on here, you'll know. Yeah. I carried when I first came on. Oh, did you? Mm-hmm. They issued them to us. I had a tourist. So Do they still use revolvers? Not anymore. I was going to say, I don't feel like I never see cops with revolvers. There are a couple that still have them, the old timers that don't, that never switched over. But when you come through the academy, you get a, they give you more modern weaponry. That is so funny. <laughs> Obviously, the revolver had been examined for fingerprints. In addition, he received the aluminum jacket, which had been found in Jimmy's body, right. as well as two 38 caliber casings, which had been found in that bullet box that they removed from his trailer, right. and also a casing which had been fired from the weapon. So the two unfired 38 caliber casings were fired from the revolver. And right. then examine to see if the markings found on the casings matched those found on the casing, which had been found in Jimmy's body. Right. When asked what his conclusion was, Cork said, my conclusion is that this bullet was fired in this weapon to the exclusion of all other weapons in the world. This is the gun that fired this bullet. Yep. This point, the state rested their case and Chavez's defense team requested a judgment of acquittal based on the fact that the state had failed to establish corpus delicti. Corpus delecti. Okay, I was close. Which is the body of the crime. Right. I hadn't known what that was, but they basically were saying that the state failed to establish corpus delecti for the crime of sexual battery. So that basically means that they failed to present any concrete evidence that a sexual assault had taken place beyond basically what Chavez said. Like there was no actual physical evidence. Right. So that request was denied. And the defense began to present their own case. So to start, they called Ed Shinehouse, which was Mrs. Shinehouse's son who had been with her. He testified that at the time of the murder, he'd been on house arrest. He had been allowed to leave his house only when he went to work, which was from 10, he worked night shift from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. And I want to say he was, he worked, it's like an exterminator. Do we know what he was on house arrest for? I forget. No, and I tried to look it up and I couldn't find it. But all I could find is that it was a nonviolent crime. Okay. So, I mean, maybe like burglary. I don't really know. Yeah, yeah. Some type of property crime or something. Theft or something like that, probably. So, yeah, he he could leave the house to go to work from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. And then if he needed to leave for some other purpose, he had to get it arranged beforehand, like with his parole officer. Right. 
So he admitted to having worn an ankle monitor and was also called several times throughout the day by a computer ser- service in order to guarantee that he was indeed at home during the hours he was supposed to be. So I don't know if it still works this way today, but at the time, obviously you had an ankle monitor and then a computerized system would call yeah. your house at random times. And what you would have to do is you'd answer. And then when they would tell you, you have like X amount of seconds and you'd have to put your monitor next to this like, yeah, the, the receiver, right? The, the phone yeah. receiver had to be. And I think you were required to have like an actual landline, like a hard line. It couldn't be like a cell phone or anything. Yeah. Like that. It had to be a landline to that residence that you logged as your house or your place, your, your place of residence. Which this is a... back when people still had landlines, you know, 95. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. a lot of people didn't even have cell phones yet back then. Right. Yeah. Cell phones weren't, uh, I didn't think we, I don't think I got my first one until like 99, I think I want to say. I still remember what your all's first cell phones look like. Those silver flip phones. Yeah. Remember? Yeah, those big bulky, ridiculous things. But yeah, naturally today is more, it's way more modern. They have GPS tracking and, you know, they keep track of the person better than it was back then. But it was still effective back then because if you weren't, like I said, you had to have the landline and you had to be there and you only had, you know, a certain amount of what it was, 10 or 15 seconds to, you know, put the receiver down by your thing and let that little signal communicate uh, to show that you were still there. So well, and they called at random times. Like, it's not like, you know, they would be like, we're going to call you at 12, 2. Yeah, and right. it was like, you never knew when they were going to call. Right, exactly. So next, Chavez actually testified in his own defense, which is rare. Yeah, that was a little shocking when you told me that the first time I was like, what? Yeah, so he claimed that while in Cuba, he had belonged to a counter-revolutionary group that had been imprisoned in Cuba. Basically, he was claiming he'd been imprisoned in Cuba for his political activity. He then described how he had escaped from prison and Cuba altogether by coming over on a raft from Cuba to Florida. Okay. However, later during the penalty phase of the trial, Chavez's childhood friend was called to testify and he claimed that he had never known Chavez to be involved in any revolutionary group. (laughs) And he had never even known Chavez to show any sort of interest in politics or had never, ever heard Chavez complain about the Cuban government at all. Yeah, I'm going to call liar, liar, pants on fire for that one. He's a liar. Yeah. But you'll, as we go through, you'll see why he lied about that. Because it it goes into his uh, whole defense. Of course, yes. When asked about the events that occurred on September 11th, 1995, Chavez testified that the Shinehouses both had access to his trailer because a key to the trailer hung on a hook within their kitchen. He then claimed he'd come home to his trailer on that afternoon and saw Ed's car parked outside. He then heard the sound of his trailer door opening and closing. So at that point, he went inside his trailer to see what was going on and was horrified to find a young boy's body on the floor, along with Ed, who was in a panic. (laughs) Chavez claimed Ed admitted to him that he had shot and killed the boy after he'd fallen on the floor, and the boy had made an attempt to escape. When asked why Ed had kidnapped the boy, Chavez claimed he didn't ask Ed, and Ed hadn't explained. I thought that part of the testimony was so funny, because it's like, you're you're telling me that you went into your trailer, which this guy's not even supposed to be in anyway. You find him with this dead little boy, and you don't ask any, you don't, you're not like, Hey, why'd you do that, bud? Hey, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah. It's his business. Like what? Yeah. yeah no. Chavez claimed Ed begged him to help him get the boy's body into his truck. And he'd finally agreed. <laughs> Chavez said that at the time he assumed Ed was driving away to report the crime to the police, which I'm like, really? That's your assumption. Hey, help me drag this body sure. into my vehicle. I'm just going to drive right over to the police station. Yeah. 
I'll let them take care of this. Because that's normal procedure. You kill somebody, throw the body in your car, and drive to the police station. Although, could you imagine if, like, you're just, like, a cop sitting on the, you know, desk doing whatever, and some guy walks in with, like, a body slung over his shoulder and is like, there, here you all go. There are some crazy stories about some, not necessarily like that, but there's some weird stuff that walks into the police station. You'll be amazed. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> Can't make this shit up. Can't make this shit up. Although Chavez did make this shit up. Well, he did. He was <laughs> fabricating this uh, defense uh, story that he's putting together, but you know. So meanwhile, he thinks Ed's going to go take this body over to the police station. So meanwhile, sure. Chavez went to move Ed's Acura back to his residence because he claimed Ed had told him to do so. When Chavez got into the car, he pushed the seat back and found the revolver hidden under the seat. He testified oh. that that he had touched the gun at that point, and that's why his fingerprints had been found on it. Sure, that's what happened. That's what happened. Sure. He also admitted that he had used the gun previously for target practice with the Shinehouse's permission because they had told him that it was his duty to protect the farm from intruders. And that's also why his fingerprints could have been found on the weapon. Right, because it's the wild, wild west down here, and intruders will be shot. I just think it's funny because it's like, you know they're going to touch, which I guess his whole point is that like Ed did it and his mom's like covering for him. Again, yeah, he were just, we're, he's just trying to cast just enough doubt that it would be plausible that he wasn't the one that did it. That's because it's the, the state has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the person did it, you know, and the defense just has to cast that little bit of, that's why they, you know, that's why sometimes you've seen it on TV, but it actually happens like in, in trials and stuff. The defense attorney tries to get the cop or the witness to, to get really pissed off to show their anger. And yeah, like throw, if you can just cast a little, if you do, all you need is one juror to say, you know what? I don't think he did it. At the least you get like a hung jury or whatever. And then you right. have to retry it. And, you know, so part Wait, of the, the defense tactic, you know, like, Part of this case that I also found really creepy, it, which I left out, is when uh, Mrs. Shinehouse testified, she said that her the last time she had seen her weapon, it had been in her underwear drawer. Oh, that's right. I remember that. So. And, and so if you think about how gross that is, that means Chavez was like looking around in her underwear drawer, which you know so, he wasn't looking for a gun in there. He was like looking at this lady's underwear. I'll pose this question. Was he allowed in the house? As a worker, I guess he was able to come and go into their house. I don't think he was supposed to. I think it's okay, so which I don't really know why they were leaving their door so open. He that burglar, he could get so in. he burglarized the house. Yeah. Essentially. And stole the weapon. And which is, you know, that's a pretty severe crime in itself. But because this is like a giant property in the Redlands, even from his trailer to their house was like quite a walk. Like they would they would usually right. drive instead because it was like you right, know, okay. it's not like yeah. it was right next door. Yeah, there's down there, those some of those farms and stuff, they're like hundreds of acres. So for sure, they drive around at least like on golf carts or those, you know, those four wheelers or whatever to, to get around. So I guess there are some instances where workers can come in and go, but he's in her room, like you said, going in her, her underwear, underwear drawer. drawer. And so, yeah, that, so that's like he was probably sniffing her underwear and stuff, probably rummaging around in there. And then like just happened. He was like, oh, extra treat a gun. Right. Just I don't know. Fucking weird. Um, in his testimony, he also claimed that this is why the bullets were found in his home because Mrs. Shinehouse had given him the bullets for target practice. Right, because you know we have to shoot intruders. But like I said, her, her, and Ed both were like, "Nah." Yeah, no, that's yeah. 
next, Chavez claimed he arrived at the Shinehouse residence to drop off Ed's vehicle, and he was just so shocked to see Ed there because he thought he was going to the police with the body. Oh, my God. At that point, Ed demanded that Chavez help him hide the body, and when Chavez refused, Ed threatened him by saying if he refused to help, Ed would go to the authorities and tell them that he had helped hide the body anyway, and Chavez would be deported for his involvement. Which, that's why he's claiming the whole, he's like a government prisoner of Cuba, because basically he's, he's claiming that if he were to get deported, it would, it would be life or death because they'd kill him if he got deported back to which, Cuba. Which, that is an actual thing thing that occurs. Certain people get, you know, you get sent back to your own country, and depending on what your status is, and especially we know the history of Cuba and the Castro regime, if you truly are an enemy of the state, let's say, or against Castro, they don't, I mean, you get in prison, but your your days are numbered on this earth, that's for sure. I've known a lot of people who's found, like, well, my, my great-grandfather was imprisoned when Castro took over, so it definitely, you know. Which, did he ever get out? Yeah, he did. And he, he like, did. He, yeah, he, he lived his last days there. I mean, he stayed in Cuba the rest of his life or whatever. But, but yeah, he was. Uh... It's even shittier that Chavez lied about that. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Because that is yeah. like something that people really suffer through, but you're not one. Right, exactly. Yeah, you're just using it to try to get out of get away with murder. murder. Yeah. So at that point, Chavez said he agreed because he was so scared of getting deported back to Cuba. Chavez helped place Jimmy's body into Chavez's van which was the one that didn't work. A few right. days later, Ed explained to Chavez that he had taken care of the body, but Chavez said he suspected that Ed had hit it in the planter. Listen, if you're not the one that puts body parts in a planter and covers it with concrete, you don't have a fucking idea that that's maybe where he ha hit it. You know what I'm saying? Like, come on. Yeah, like, that would be the last place I would think. That's fucking preposterous. But no, he just knew. I know, well, you know. This whole this this whole case is is fucked, but you know, and that's just him trying to save his own life, I guess. I don't know. But that's the part that I think is so funny because it's like you're the one who asked for the death penalty, like initially, right? Initially, so both Ed and his parole officer testified that on September 11th, 1995, Ed had been at home and had regularly reported in electronically when required to do so. So basically, there was no evidence that like he had ever been out of the house. So you mean no violations of probation? Correct. All right, then. Next, Chavez claimed he'd been abused by the detectives who'd interrogated him. He claimed throughout his interrogation he wasn't allowed to know what time, of, what time or what day it was and that his watch had been confiscated as soon as he'd been arrested. He was not permitted to sleep. He stated that the detectives had brought Jimmy's book bag into the interrogation room and asked him to look through the bag's contents, which is how his fingerprints got on the items inside. So basically that they had framed him. Yeah. He claimed that the police threatened him with deportation to confess and provided him with the details of his confession, which is how he knew how everything had occurred. He stated he was so afraid of deportation that he admitted to whatever they wanted him to. They probably forgot to tell him that the interrogation was all videotaped, audio and videoed. And... Which, well, I was going to ask that. Was it back then in 95? Uh, well, you know, I, you know what? I don't know for 100%. I will find out. For sure. But I'm pretty sure that everything was recorded back then. I mean, it might it might not have been a video recording, but there was definitely audio recording of it because tape recorders have been around for. Forever, oh, that's so. true. There would have at least been audio for sure. Right. So it ends up this all this whole thing. Yeah, yeah, 
there there's all these people who like witnessed it like not even just police officers like even the interpreter who she's not even affiliated with the police department like she's just a separate um person that they hired and even she said like no i everything was fine well like i said at the beginning like this case like when he was talking about he wasn't allowed to sleep and all that stuff this case but i remember specifically the detectives kept the log like it's part of our procedures now when we have a subject or a prisoner or whatever in our interview rooms we have to log every time we check on them every time they go to the restroom every time we give them a drink whatever this case was like the first one that i remember at least one of the biggest ones that that they've told me the detectives kept a single a log of every single interaction everybody that went into the room when that what time they left when he was given food, when he was taken to the bathroom, when they gave him the pillow, how long he was allowed to sleep. It was like literally this kind of set the precedent of how we interviewed these all persons now, but especially in high profile cases like this, because 52 hours in a in an interrogation, even, you know, on scene and everything, that's a very, very long time. And it's absolutely allowable because it's part of the the criminal investigation. But, you know, we're talking about two plus days, you know, 48 hours, two days. That's so he was fed. He was, and you can even see there's a, um, in our bureau, in our, in our hallway, we have pictures and there's a picture of the two detectives walking him out of headquarters when they're taking him to the jail. And he's like, perfect. He's not beat up. He's not. Yeah. Um, he's not or, like bruised not, or anything. Yeah. He's walking out. He has his jacket on. I, I can see the picture right now. I'm not looking at it right now, but I can see it vividly. He's wearing a baseball cap. He's got like a shirt on with like a, I don't know if it's like a members only jacket or but something like that, like a windbreaker. I hope it was members only because that's so representative of the time. I know. I'm going to have to look, but it was like some type of windbreaker and he was walking out and he was walking out on his, like, I mean, naturally he was handcuffed and they were holding on to him, but I mean, naturally he's going to try to, again, cast some type of doubt or some type of uh, misfeasance on you know, on the police or, or his treatment or whatever to try, you know, grasping at straws, you know, like, does it happen? Yes. Has it happened in the past? Yes. Do, you know, confessions and stuff, you know, we know the history of, you know, sometimes people getting abused for confession, you know, beat, beaten for confessions and stuff, but not, not at the level, not at the level of this case was, you know, it makes me angry, like to hear that type of stuff, because, you know, when you're a good cop, and then you have to, or a good police officer, good investigator, and you have to deal with all the other shit of the bad investigators and what they do it's like you know like i get it i get it it's part of the game but you know it's you know we're our our department our our standards are so very high that you know that shit doesn't happen like i'm not gonna say that never happened but in the 26 years that i've been on it hasn't happened with me so he was full of shit and naturally the outcome of the case is gonna you know prove that he was full of shit so oh yeah like the the rest of his they basically disprove everything he says so he also claimed that an officer had slapped him on the back of the head and then later ignored him when he said he was too tired to continue with questioning he testified that while he was sitting on the floor and stretching his legs detective diaz entered the interrogation room slammed his leather jacket on the table and told Chavez, quote, put your ass on that fucking chair. Furthermore, he claimed that the detectives would, quote, get the truth out of me, whether it was by pulling my tongue out in pieces or squeezing my nuts, that tougher men than me had gone through that chair. And at the end, they all wound up as shit. He couldn't get anything out of me. He was not about to leave me free on the streets either, that he was going to take pleasure of sending my ass back to Cuba and that Castro would take care of me. They don't want queers in this country, all those types of things that were going on, end quote. So that's what he testified happened. He then said he was given a bagel and a cup of coffee on a missing poster with Jimmy's picture on it and was asked if he had, quote, any balls for eating while you're looking at his face. That may have happened. 
<laughs> uh, you know, I've, I've uh, plenty of times I've put the, put a picture of the, of the dead victim in front of the subject. Well, I and, think that's pretty common. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like that's not like abuse, you know, abuse. No, no. Listen, you have, yes. Historically, the subjects get screamed at officers get mad. They get, you know, cursed at what, but we did one thing we discussed the first time and I'll, and I'll bring it up again. Cause I thought it was funny. As soon as you said that he stated that detective Diaz slammed his leather jacket on the ground, on the table. Yeah. Anybody who spent any time in September or September, even October, no, in South I Florida. Think, well, he was, um, he was questioned in the beginning of December. I think it was like December 8th. I want to say. Okay. December's in Miami. I'm going to tell you right now. Still hot as fuck. Don't require a leather jacket. I'm going to let you know right now. The majority of people who live down here don't have a leather jacket. And if you do, it's because you live somewhere else where it was cold and you, or just you haven't travel moved down here. or something. You travel. Right, exactly. I guarantee you there's not a detective that I've ever worked with or that I've ever seen to walk into the bureau with a leather jacket on. Yeah, you'd be sweating your bots off, even of in December. Of course. It's so that right there, when you said it the first time, I was like, nah. And then I'm gonna have to say it again because nah, it's <laughs> yeah, like it's just, just which is it is interesting that he would come up with such a specific detail of like a leather right. jacket as opposed which, to just like a jacket. Which for me, because I you know, because I, I work there and I know, you know, so to me it's funny because I know for sure that there isn't a damn person in the bureau that's gonna wear a leather jacket unless they're just trying to be silly or fashionable or <laughs> But, honestly even if you're trying to be fashionable like you, you take it off you be sweating your ass off exactly yeah guys i mean they don't even wear they don't even wear like blazers and stuff and unless they're like going to court like because it's so hot and they have to wear shirt and ties like you know like I don't, I don't know i just it struck me as funny and i guess you know the personal aspect of it i was like there's no way he had a leather jacket well we find out more about that so on cross-examination, the prosecution showed the jury photographs taken when Chavez had been taken to the crime scene during the middle of the interrogation. Because remember, he had got, they had yeah. taken him to the crime scene. Took him out on scene, yeah. The photographs showed Chavez wearing his watch, which is funny because remember, he was claiming- Oh, that's right. They confiscated it, it. Which I thought that was funny that they introduced yeah. the photos being like, no, nah, he still had his watch. Like, that's a lie. Well, um, yeah, when you, whenever you can disprove something that the defense is trying to knock down, that's why the, the the state always has the chance to cross-examine again or, you know, to any yeah, rebuttals rebuttal. or whatever. Yeah. So because if it's an important piece of evidence and the defense just discluded it or, or, or cast doubt against it, you have to be able to explain why. And if yeah. you can't, then you lose it. And that's why that was <laughs> the video was shown like, hey, he said he, his watch was taken. Well, there's a picture of his watch. We don't yeah. like take it from him and then put it back on him. And, you know. Yeah. Why would you? Yeah. It's not how it works. So the prosecutor then confronted Chavez with his signed confession, like you were just saying, and his signed Mirandais forms. Right. Chavez claimed that he had lied to the detectives because he assumed that they would discover it was false through the crime scene evidence. He said during his questioning, he attempted to tell De Detective Estopinan that Ed Shinehouse had committed the murder, but that Estopinan had stormed out of the room and was unwilling to listen to his story. He also told the prosecutor that he had lied during his confession when he claimed to be a homosexual because within one of his many stories, he claimed that he was a gay man. He said he'd made up the story about having a boyfriend named, quote, Ivan, who had helped him commit the crime because the police repeatedly told him over and over that there must have been a second person involved in the kidnapping. He claimed the detectives told him there were only three motives for kidnapping children, and the three reasons were ransom because an accident had occurred and the child had accidentally died 
or for the purposes of sexual molestation. There you go. Following Chavez's testimony, the defense rested their case and the state chose to present rebuttal testimony. Absolutely. So the detectives who had interrogated Chavez were called to the stand. They denied that what any of Chavez had said was, was true, that none of those claims of abuse had occurred. They also denied ever taking the watch from him, which we know is true because there's photos of it. They also stated that Chavez had never mentioned Ed Shinehouse as a possible perpetrator at any time within their questioning. Right. He initially, right, he gave three fabricated stories first before he finally, he went to the restroom and he had a, you know, an epiphany or whatever and said, I'll tell you whatever you want to know. And he like technically confessed to the crime in those first three lies or uh, I guess versions, altered versions of, of what occurred. He never brought it up because it was documented. One of the things that's going to be done is every statement you give is going to be documented because when you start to lie, when you tell that lie, you don't remember the lies and they want to get you two, three, four, five times telling the wrong version until you do tell the right version. So yeah. for him to say, again, just another point for him to say that the detectives never listened to him. Bullshit. The detectives listened to everything he had to say and, and allowed him to say it over and over and over again. Well, and here's the other point I think is let's just say for argument's sake, the officers were corrupt and just like wanted to get him for whatever reason. Why then would they write down all your other versions of the story? But then your one about Ed, they choose to leave out. Like if they were trying, they would have just left Ed at all. Wouldn't they? Like, why would they write down your story about that would be the only statement? Right. Or why would you have the the whole story of you having like a gay lover and stuff? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, why would they choose to leave the the one story out, but not all the others? Right. Again, it's just the defense trying to cast that bit of doubt or try to discredit the officers to make the jury think that, oh, there was some type of malfeasance or, you know, some type of mistake that was made or there was a personal vendetta against this guy because of whatever, which luckily in this case, it wasn't the case. And, you know, it wasn't it didn't dissuade the jury because this guy was he's a complete monster and deserved everything he got. So my opinion. Well, I agree. I think I totally think he's guilty. Like, I I don't think there's very there's like all the evidence points to you, bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next, the state called Ed's parole officer who testified that Ed had only lost his ankle bracelet one time throughout his entire parole and that he had come in the very same day that it had come off in order to replace it. So you know, it's not like he tried to hide it or anything. Yeah. What what it did fall off, it wasn't even around the time of the crime. Right, right. Um, but yeah, but it's just showing that he's he's obeying and following the procedures and you know the requirements of his house arrest or whatever. Right. You know, whatever. So that he's you know, come on. He said that during the month of September 1995, Ed had remained in his home with the exception of when he was working, and that he had received no violations at all in that month. So every phone call that was made. He put the thing, you know, yeah. he did what you're supposed to do, he, you know, yeah, and just <laughs> making a defense. Yeah. I mean, I see what they're trying to do. That's what yeah. I said earlier. I'm yeah. like, I'm like, for as little options as the defense had, I think that they like. They tried. Yeah, they tried. Yeah, they tried. I mean, you know, and everybody um, deserves a defense. So next, the state called Officer Diaz to the stand. He's the one who claimed slammed down the leather jacket. Oh, yeah, with the leather. <laughs> the leather which jacket. I... This part's funny, given that what we already talked about. Officer Diaz testified that not only did he not slam a leather jacket onto the table, or any jacket for that matter, but he, in fact, had never even owned a leather jacket. There you go. (laughs) There you go. I'm telling you. Like, I own a leather jacket because I was in the Army, and I moved, and I lived in a place where it snowed. 
So I bought a leather jacket. That's it. If not, I even no, rode a you... motorcycle. I never wore a leather jacket. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, when I lived in South Florida, I didn't, I never owned a no, leather jacket. You don't. It's, you can't. A t-shirt's too much sometimes. It's so hot down here. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Sometimes you just want to walk around naked. Yeah. But don't do that. Don't do that. Following the state's rebuttal, Chavez's defense team attempted to renew three of their previous motions. So the first was a motion to repress all of his confession statements because, you know, they're claiming they're claiming that they were like extracted illegally. Right. Yes. They were coerced. Yeah, they were coerced. The second was a motion for acquittal again, stating that the the state had failed to provide any concrete evidence for the sexual assault. And the third motion was for a mistrial based on the first two, basically. Right. So all three motions were denied. The judge was like, nah. Yeah, the state did a good job putting presenting the case. So the jury returned guilty verdicts on all counts. Right. Following the penalty phase of the trial, the jury again deliberated and recommended the death penalty by a vote of twelve to zero. That's right. That's pretty conclusive. Yeah. One hundred percent. The judge agreed with the jury's recommendation and sentenced Chavez to death for the homicide, as well as two consecutive life sentences for kidnapping and for sexual battery. Right. He was uh, never getting out of prison ever. With a minimum of a three-year mandatory sentence for the life sentences, which you know didn't really yeah, matter because he got the death penalty. So yeah, we discussed that before. Like you were like, he can get out in three years. No, that's just they have to advise what the minimum mandatory on those charges were, and that he would have like. Yes. Is there a possibility on the two life sentences that, uh, yes, but because he had the death sentence on as the first one, it wasn't, he wasn't ever getting out. So it's a sentencing procedure. That's all that the judge has to advise what the minimum mandatories were. Chavez attempted to appeal his convictions, but they were ultimately upheld and he was executed by lethal injection on February 12th, 2014. So that's a long time after- We discussed that before. The fact that it took 19 years upsets me because A, that's way too much time for somebody who's sitting on death row for the sentence to be executed or whatever. But the fact that he initially said that he wanted the death penalty and then now 19 years later, that guy got to fucking live 19 more years and Jimmy Rice didn't have a a fucking moment past September. Yeah, well, September 11th. I mean, 11th, what did I say? 11th. Drives me absolutely fucking bonkers. You said September, that's your anniversary. I and your wife's birthday. I know. Hey, don't <laughs> that shit out like that. Edit that shit out. It's staying. Identity in. fraud. Oh yeah, I guess. Okay, I'll bleep yeah. it out. I'll bleep yeah. out the date. Yeah, just say September. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no. But it, it, you know, that's that's one thing about like you know when these these people get convicted of murder or whatever. It's like they get to spend. 10, 15. Now, granted, I understand they're on death row and they're incarcerated and they're still alive. They're still drawing breath. And the person that they killed isn't. Especially Jimmy, who was only eight years old. Yeah. A kid walking home from school. He got off the bus trying to go home. And this fucking animal, you know, happens. It's, you know, unfortunate. Well, it only you're just going to get more mad because I know Chavez made no final statement, but he did provide a written statement in that he showed no remorse. He claimed to have found religion in prison, which had helped him find forgiveness for those who had helped convict him. He was forgiving the cops. Yeah, of course, the people that, you know, brought him to justice. We need forgiveness. He said he hoped for, quote, unfailing love be upon us, upon me, upon those who today take the life out of this body. 
as well as those who in their blindness or in their pain desire my death. God bless us all, end quote. Yeah. Well. He also stated, quote, none of us can pass judgment on another's sins. Yes, we can. We can, and they did. We did. <laughs> Following Chavez's execution, Jimmy's father, Don Rice, gave a message to child predators. He told the press, quote, don't kill the child. Don't kill the child. Because if you do, people will not forget. They will not forgive. We will hunt you down and we will put you to death. Absolutely. So following their son's murder, Jimmy's parents began campaigning for longer prison sentences for sexual predators and improved police procedures in cases involving missing children. They also began a nonprofit called the Jimmy Rice Center for Victims of Predatory Abduction, which provides AKC bloodhounds free to law enforcement. Yeah, they've done a lot with that foundation, yeah. Yeah, the reason they do that is they want the dogs to be used to find abducted and lost people. Right. Because the Rices believed the odds of finding Jimmy alive may have increased had bloodhounds been able to be used in the search for their son. Right. Um, we have, we, we definitely have bloodhounds and we have cadaver dog. We call them cadaver dogs. Their nonprofit has, they've given over 600 dogs as of this recording to law enforcement agencies around the world. You know, it's obviously uh, stationed in Florida, their nonprofit, right. but they give it to all over the United States and other countries, which I think yeah. is pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, children are being abducted all the time. So it's, you know. The center also works to increase public awareness and education about sexual predators in addition to providing counseling for parents of victims who've had children abducted, right. they also offer training to law enforcement agencies in how to properly respond to missing children's cases. The Rices also helped in persuading pre President Bill Clinton to sign an executive order allowing missing persons flyers to be posted in federal buildings right. as they had been prevented from doing so in the search for their son, which is... This case This case changed a lot of things. One thing I did wanted to touch upon, the um, we talked about the, the mattress that, that had the uh, DNA that didn't match anybody. The trailer was... I know we, we spoke about the evidence was taken from the trailer, the uh, the floor, the mattress, and the cushion. The trailer itself was also confiscated or... It was uh, impounded and we had it in our secured storage facility at the department up until about two years ago, rules of evidence, because there was DNA that was obtained that wasn't, wasn't identified to anybody. The trailer had to be maintained or the evidence had to be maintained. We had the trailer in our custody up until about two years ago. There's nothing left in the trailer. It's been processed 50 ways from Sunday. There's not a, a speck of evidence left, but if for some reason somebody comes forward or somehow there's evidence that ties him to Juan Carlos Chavez and that match. Or they find a body or something. Right. So th that had to be maintained. They, they finally went in front of a judge and said the trailer's no longer needed. So it was disposed of. The evidence naturally is still retained in our crime lab. And So the mattress um, is probably still there. Yeah, it's that, that's all still there. But the actual trailer itself, we had, you know, they had stored it in the back and it was like always kind of a, always like a negative thing. You would look at it and just kind of always brought back like, you know, fucking little boy lost his life in that, you know, the horrific nature of that crime. And yeah, it would me. give me the heebie-jeebies to be like even near it. Yeah. yeah, the fact that we had it for so long was, you know, it finally got disposed of and, you know, naturally the evidence is still there. But Juan Carlos Chavez was put to death. So the only thing that will happen now is if he's linked to anything else or if that DNA ever matches somebody, they'll be able to, they'll be able to close a case. There won't be necessarily justice, although. Yeah. In your opinion, do you think that the odds are that there was other? Victims? Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, Absolutely. like I think yeah. so. 
Yeah. Now, because what are the odds that that was the first time he'd ever well, committed a crime of that nature? Well, th- exactly right. But no, I don't believe that that was his first time. Too, it was too orchestrated, too smooth, or too, yeah, like there was no fuck ups until trying to get rid of the body. Right. You know what I'm saying because he never had to get rid of the body before or whatever. You know what I'm saying? So, or maybe he did, but just not wasn't as rushed to do so. I wonder if they, because you know how originally he was trying to bury the body with the backhoe. The only reason that that didn't happen is because the backhoe broke. Neither I kind of wonder if he had killed before and and used the backhoe and buried it on that property. If there's question. bodies buried there, or at least one other body. Right, right. That's a possibility. You never know. We'll we'll never know. Unfortunately, Unless somebody finds it. Well, I mean, yeah, but I mean, how are you going to find? Unless they do like a what is it lidar or whatever that they have that new stuff that can read into the ground if there's you know bodies or people. Yeah. Or, but who's gonna go across a an avocado farm to see you know what i'm saying like unless yeah, unless, unless somebody developed. starts doing construction or something you know exactly right so uh additionally in 1998 jimmy's parents helped the state of florida pass the jimmy rice act which allows the state to commit sexual predators who are still considered highly dangerous to a rehabilitation institution following their prison sentence. The predators are unable to be released from the rehabilitation institution until they are deemed rehabilitated, which I don't think they really are ever rehabilitated. I don't, yeah, I was going to say, I don't think they ever truly do, but... Unfortunately, Chavez himself had no prior sexual offenses in our country, so th- that law specifically wouldn't have really affected him particularly. Jimmy's father, Don Rice, said, quote, you've got to do something or you do nothing. That was just not the way that we wanted to live the rest of our lives. Unfortunately, Jimmy's mother, Claudine, passed away in 2009. And Jimmy's sister, he had an older sister and an older brother. His sister, Martha, committed suicide in 2012. Yeah. Don Rice told the Miami Herald that he believed Jimmy's murder had contributed to Mar- Martha's suicide as it had broken her heart. Yeah, I believe he- it. He said, quote, this is the kind of loss that never gets right, that you never completely recover from. Never. Both Claudine and Martha died before ever getting to see Chavez put to death, which is sad. Even that fucker got to outlive them. Right. Like, like that, see what I'm saying? Like, that's, that's fucking wrong. <laughs> you know, like. Following Chavez's execution, Ted Rice, Jimmy's older brother, also addressed the press, stating, quote, many people have asked why I have decided to come today. I did not come today to celebrate Juan Carlos's execution. In fact, I did not want to come. So why did I come? I came here to represent my brother, Jimmy Rice. I came here for my sister, Martha, and my mother, Claudine. I came here today because I believe in the justice that has been served on this day. I am here to support that belief. I am also here as a symbol of strength to show you that in spite of all the terrible tragedies we've been through, my father and I still stand strong and strength is something that is sorely lacking in this country. Many people did not believe Juan Carlos Chavez should be put to death for his horrible crime of raping and killing my brother, Jimmy Rice. I believe this comes from a place of weakness, not strength. It comes from not being able to face the atrociousness of some men's actions and punish them on a level commensurate with their crime. But we must be strong. We must do what it takes to send a clear message to other child predators that if they go after children, if they kill children, that they will die at the executioner's hands. Today will bring no closure for my family. As my father stated, closure does not exist. But the justice served this day after a painful 19 years will end the chapter on this part of our life. And now we look forward to moving on. Which, like we talked about before, I agree with half of that. <laughs> um, I, I agree with I mean, I agree almost with almost all of it. The only part I don't agree with 
is when he says that basically people who don't believe in the death penalty, it's like from a place of weakness. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think there are lots of reasons why people like don't agree with the death penalty. For me personally, it's a very gray area. I really don't stand one way or the other. I think it's like situational on the case for me. But that's the only part that I was like, oh, I agree. I I agree. I mean, I I agree with you. I don't think that people that don't believe in in the death penalty, it's it's not weakness. It's whatever. Like, again, like you said, their their belief system or whatever. I absolutely 100 percent believe in it. It's black and white for me. If you take a life, you should forfeit your life. That's how it goes. You know, unless it's like in self-defense or whatever. But if you like murder somebody or. Yeah, like in cold blood. Yeah, cold blood. And like this case, like this exactly you kidnap a child you sexually assault the child you murder the child and then forget everything that happens after that but dispose of its body you know dispose of the body and everything once you take that child's life that's it your life is forfeit as far as i'm concerned if you're truly the person guilty of it well and i think that nobody will ever truly know how they feel about it until they're faced with their loved one being murdered like whether it's your child your mom your you know right. your friend your sister your brother right. i think that it's you know it's one thing to say oh you know i don't believe in that but i think when it happens to you it's very understandable that your feelings may change absolutely absolutely and everybody's different and everybody has raised differently has different beliefs different you know cultures all that stuff but like you said until it happens to you or you're in the middle of it you can't honestly say what you're going to believe this is what you believe now that's what you want to believe but you could totally be the opposite god forbid a crime like this occurs to you or somebody in your family or something like that, you know, like, so again, that's why I, I agree with you that I don't believe that that statement that, you know, it's a sign of weakness that people don't believe in a death penalty. I think there's other reasons for it, but you definitely have to, oh, well, I don't want to say you have to experience it because I don't want anybody to ever experience what happened in this case. But, you know, until you're living it, you really can't say with 100% honesty, how you're going to, you know, react. Um, I agree. You know, there's shit out there. There's evil out there that needs to be addressed and, There's people like me who address it. Amen. So for you guys listening out there, if you're interested in making a donation uh, to the Jimmy Rice Center, very uh, important. Yep. I I wanted to add this in because actually um, following uh, Chavez's execution, Don Rice, Jimmy's dad actually passed away. And according to Jimmy's brother, his, some of his last words were he wanted his son to promise him that he would keep the Jimmy Rice Center uh, going. Right. So if you're interested in making a donation, you can donate at jimmyrice.org. So it's Jimmy, J-I-M-M-Y, Rice, R-Y-C-E, dot O-R-G. And also I'll post all of my sources for this on the show notes, like always. Also, I just wanted to remind you guys, follow us on Instagram at can't make this shit up pod because we post a lot of stuff on there. We also post pictures of Every time we put out a case, so you can, if, if you're a visual person like me, you can see pictures of everybody. Nothing right. graphic, obviously. No, of course not. Um, we also like, we'll, we'll do like polls on there and like ask questions and ask for, you know, input and stuff. So yeah, if you like us, follow us on there. Please send us some questions. So you can, you can either message us on Instagram or you can email us. I can't make this shit up pod at gmail.com. We'll answer them if we can. And if we can't, then I'll give you a reason why we can't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that was the murder of Jimmy Rice. Thank you, Raquel, again for yep. your suggestion. Shout out this to Raquel. A- Good to talk about it. So sad that it happened, but it was close to home. So definitely part of my life. So well, until next time, y'all. Bye. Bye.